sure I got all the pages as we could be cut short. <laughs> I don't know about you, but when I read that the first time um, and hearing Roy read it again, it hit me really hard. We've got an amazing privilege as part of God's family. A couple of weeks ago, I heard a news report on the radio. Apparently, there are currently twice as many children in this country awaiting adoption than there are potential adoptees. There are about 72,500 children in the UK in care. Now, obviously, not all of them uh, require adoption. But last year, 4,500 thereabouts were adopted. That's 20% less than the year before. Yet not that long ago, if you looked at the newspapers, you would see frequent reports of people going to third world countries, to Eastern Europe, to India, to Africa, to adopt children, even though we have people, children waiting in our own country. Probably because everyone wants to adopt a baby, not an older child. But you also have to question in some cases why people were doing it. And do have suspicion, particularly with some of the celebrities, is whether they were trying to adopt children because they wanted a child as part of their lives and couldn't by other means, or did they just want sort of a fashion accessory? I'll have the, the little, little um, what do you call it, lap dog and a child, and then I've got my, my image right. Either way, whatever we do, adoption in the UK is a long demanding process. There are measures in place to safeguard the child. A lot of our focus in adoption is about the child and protecting the child and doing what's best for the child, which is good, as long as it keeps in proportion. And if you want to adopt, and particularly if you go overseas, it can be expensive for the prospective parents, it takes commitment, and it takes uh, sacrifice to complete. But our way of adoption clearly was not what Paul was thinking about. When Paul wrote the passage that we've read today, and not just that passage, but elsewhere in Romans and in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 and Galatians chapter 4, he was thinking about the Roman ways of doing things. Our culture, the Jewish culture in biblical times, and Roman culture were all very different and had very different ways of approaching adoption. And what Paul was doing in writing to the Romans was tailoring his message to his readers to make sure that what he wanted to say came across loud and clear. In Jewish society, for example, there was no concept of adoption. Family was the key thing. You were part of a family. And in the Jewish way of doing things, if the head of a household, the man died, his brother automatically stepped in as head of the household. So there was no need for a legal adoption process. And if there was no brother, it was the nearest senior male relative. If you want an example of this, look at Mordecai and Esther in Esther 2, verse 7. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he brought up because she had neither a father or mother. This woman, who's known as Esther, was a lovely figure, beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. He didn't adopt her. It was just natural that she moved into his family and he looked after her. 
And if a man died childless, an unmarried brother was supposed to step in, marry his widow, and the first child was then the dead man's heir. Um, that's detailed in Deuteronomy 25, where it goes through that rule. And you might remember the Sadducees tried to trap Jesus with a question based on that very thing in Matthew 22, when they say, you know, there's seven, seven brothers, and they all die in succession having married the woman, and they never need children. So whose wife is she in the afterlife? Well, Jesus put them in their place. But you could see how it worked out in reality if you look at the story of Ruth and Boaz. Remember Ruth the Moabitess married one of Naomi's children. They died. The men died. They went back to Israel. And Boaz was one of the potential kinsmen redeemers. There was somebody closer. And you can follow the story through. But it was the family that looked after their own. It was natural. That was the way it did it. The Roman approach was very different. They did have adoption. And there, the family law was different. Adoption was undertaken typically for family advantage. You were looking for an heir because you didn't have a son of your own or the son had died. Or to reward someone who had given faithful service to your family. One of your clients who had been working for you for many years, you might adopt them as your, uh, as, as your son. And I use son advisedly here because typically the Romans adopted adult males or at least people in their late teens at best. They didn't adopt children and even more rarely did they adopt women. Why? Because in Roman law, inheritance was through the male line. It was after, you were after an heir. A woman for them was a problem because that was more expense paying a dowry to marry them off. You could do, get some advantages from that, but it wasn't what you were looking for. And under Roman law, if you were adopted, you got a new identity. You took the name of your adopted father. Well, we do that as well. Any prior commitments, responsibilities and debts, remember these are adults, that you had were erased. They ceased to exist, so there's an advantage to you there. And you got new rights and new responsibilities. And it's worth bearing in mind in ancient Rome, the concept of inheritance was part of life. It wasn't something that began at death. You didn't inherit your father's possessions when he died. You had access to them when it, while he was alive, when you were adopted into that family. And being adopted to some, by, uh, made someone an heir to the father, joint shares in his possessions, fully united to him and able to use them. And as an adopted person, you not only became part of the family, but you inherited the rank of your family. So if you were a lower class citizen who was adopted by someone of the senatorial class, you became of senatorial class yourself with all the rights and privileges that went with it. It did work both ways, though. If you were a higher class person who was adopted by somebody lower class, you lost all the previous rights and had the lower reduced set. But the biggest advantage under Roman law, was your adoptive parents could not disown you. As a natural child, your parents could look at you and under certain circumstances say, out, don't want anything more to do with you, nothing to do with me, you're over. Because their view was, natural children, you get what turns up. You know, whether they're clever, they're dim, they're capable, they're useless, it's man, woman, yeah, you, live, you live with that. And if you didn't like it, 
under certain circumstances, you are allowed to say no more. For an adopted child, you've made a choice. You have chosen that person to adopt it. So once you've made that choice, gone through the process, you had to live with it permanently. There was no way out. You couldn't back out. And though the Romans didn't have all the safeguards and procedures that we do, the process for them was still expensive for the prospective adopter. They still had to go through the legal procedures, and lawyers are lawyers. They take the money off you wherever. Sorry if there's any lawyers in the congregation. Um, and they probably had to pay something to the other family for the child, because obviously they were taking someone of economic worth to that family into their own. Now, Paul was a Roman citizen, and he was a Jew. He would have been familiar with both in, in both practices. He was inspired to use the word adopted in his epistles to the Romans, the Galatians, and the Ephesians, because this would have carried a strong, clear message to his readers. By contrast, when they were writing to Christians with a more Jewish background, Peter and James tended to use the word birth. For example, in 1 Peter 1, Peter said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And in James 1, James is, I want to say, every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, for whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In fulfillment of his own purposes, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so we become a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, in both those cases, or three strictly, the authors of the letters are making it clear to the reader what the same thing. Our status as children of God is permanent. In the Jewish law, the natural trial, you were part of the family. You could not come out of the family. Under Roman law, as adopted, you were permanent. Once you were adopted, that was it. And Jesus said something of the same thing. In fact, he made it to his disciples very clearly in the Gospel of John. He said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What the Father has given me is greater than all else, and no one can snatch it out of the Father's hand. And I love that, because you think about it, what's the image? Jesus is holding us in his hand, and then God the Father has his hand around Jesus' hand, making us doubly safe. We are part of God's family. We are permanently part of God's family. We cannot be taken away from God's family. So what did God do for us? Well, let's think about the commitment and the sacrifice he made, for starters. God's plan for our salvation started before he even created the world. He knew we would fail to keep his commandments. He knew Adam would fall and Eve would fall. Yet he still created us. And he had a plan to save us from our sin before we'd even got as far as sinning. We can see this, the first revelation of this in Genesis 3, verse 15, where he was talking to the serpent after the Adam and Eve had sinned. And he said, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he's going to strike you on the head, and you'll strike his heel. That first indication of Jesus coming into the world. And the whole story of the Bible from there 
is how God has worked out his plan, getting things ready for Jesus to come to the world, and how he worked out that plan of salvation for us. And we can't use our standards as a measure when looking at God's actions, but it's still a massive commitment. We're talking thousands of years of history, which God has worked out his plan patiently, consistently, and despite man's best efforts to muck it up. And especially when you consider how much, how often his chosen people rebelled or failed to follow his direction going through that. And look at the cost. We often gloss over the crucifixion. No, we, we, it's important. Yes, we, you know, we talk about it regularly, but we gloss over the physical aspects of it. And I think at the back of our minds, we all know to some extent it was an excruciatingly painful way to die. It was massively shameful. It was reserved for the lowest of the low. But we don't really grasp what it meant for Jesus to go through that on our behalf. Paul gives us a flavor of it in Philippians 2, where he said, Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, Uh, so though he's in the form of God, did not require or regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus gave up all the glory he had in heaven and came down into the world he created he came as the son of an unmarried teenager, probably about 13 years old. His legitimacy was questioned before he was even born. His family and his neighbors rejected him and his teaching during his ministry. They thought he was mad. The religious and the political leaders of his nation opposed him. And ultimately, they judicially murdered him with the, with the help of the occupying authorities. He was stripped naked and nailed to a cross. He was left hanging in the baking sun of a Judean day for over six hours. He was tormented by thirst and probably by the flies that would have congregated around the wounds in his hands and his feet, on his scalp where the crown of thorns were, down his back where his back had been opened up by the scourge. Every time he moved as he struggled to breathe, his back would have been ripping against the splinters from the cross behind him. He would be struggling to breathe and having to take his weight on the nails that had been put through his wrists and his hands. Uh, sorry, wrists and his feet. And on top of all that physical agony, he was being taunted at the same time by the people who had put him through that. Crucifixion was bad at the best of times. It wasn't uncommon. And everyone, the, in most of the... the People who had read the Gospels and would have read the epistles would have seen somebody being crucified. But it was different for Jesus. He not only had to bear the physical anguish, he was also bearing our sin. The holy, sinless Son of God had to take on all the sin of the world. And he had to do it alone. Because throughout his life he'd had a close communion with God. You say, my father and I are one. Yet, when he was on the cross, what did he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, Habakkuk told us why. Saying of God, your eyes are too pure to behold evil. You cannot look on wrongdoing. Jesus was bearing all that sin, all that wrongdoing, 
all my sin, all your sin, and God had to turn away. But it was worse even than that, because Jesus bore the wrath of God against sin. Jesus became, in effect, the object of the intense hatred of sin and the vengeance against sin that God had been storing up since the beginning of the world. In Romans 2.25, it talks about Jesus being the propitiation, or as the church Bible said it, the sacrifice of atonement, a sacrifice that bears God's wrath towards us to the end, and in doing so, changes God's wrath towards us into favour. All of this was essential if God was going to adopt us as his children. Because before we can be adopted, we had to be made right with God to have our sins dealt with. And that is down to God alone. God, through his Holy Spirit, had to make us alive so we can respond to his call. He has to justify us, to make us right with him through what Jesus did. And I... And I really think a lot of people don't really understand how sin affects our relationship with God. Not, you know, again, we've probably got some head knowledge, but it doesn't strike into our hearts. They sometimes get the impression people think that sticking to God's standard is like sticking to the speed limit. It's the middle of the night, the road's empty, there's no problems, actually an extra 10 or 20 miles an hour is not going to be a problem. I don't think it's like that. I think we'd be far better thinking of God's standards more like natural laws. Think like gravity. If you need to jump a 200 meter deep chasm, 600 feet or so for those of you thinking old money, it doesn't matter if you just tumble off the edge, if you get halfway over, or you miss the far side by literally centimeters or even you've got your fingernail on it but you've missed getting hold you fail to get across and the consequences for you are the same that's my impression of the way god treats sin it's absolutely perfection or nothing if you fail that standard you get the consequences no matter how good a life we lead we cannot meet the perfection that god requires on our own before we've accepted his grace and his forgiveness. But the really amazing thing is that once we've come under his grace, that we've been forgiven, that he's given us the bridge across the chasm, so we don't have to jump and fail, God doesn't stop there. Once God had decided he was going to save us, Jesus' death for us, us being made anew, us being justified, were all necessary. They had to happen, otherwise we couldn't have had any sort of reconciliation with God. But God could have stopped there. He didn't have to bring us into his family. If he didn't, we would have been his servants. We would have been just as deeply in his debt. And there are spiritual beings that are in God's presence, who are sinless, who are part, but aren't part of his family. Think about the angels. But God in his grace decided to go further with us. He's adopted us. He's made us part of his family. The amazing privilege of being part of God's family is exactly what Paul was trying to seek, seeking to communicate in Romans 8, 15 to 17, which Roy's just read to us so effectively. We've got that spirit of adoption. 
living within us. The Holy Spirit's there, bearing witness with our spirit that we're children of God. We can now call God Daddy. That's what Abba means, Daddy. Now, yes, you know, we, we need to be careful. Um, God is still God. He's still the almighty sovereign Lord who made the universe. But we have a relationship with him as, as Father. I don't know if any of you saw the interview a few years ago now with princesses Beatrice and Eugenie where they were talking about their life and they were talking about the Queen and saying, Granny. Yeah, that's the sort of relationship. Yes, she's the Queen, yeah, but for them, she's Granny. Yes, God is, our, is the Almighty Creator. He is our Father. We can approach him as a child goes to their parents. And who amongst us who's a parent doesn't like to give good things to our children. So does God. You know, if Jesus said, if you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And then there's discipline. Okay, not so much fun. But God disciplines us for our own good. Let's remember, discipline is not necessarily about punishment. It's about steering somebody in the direction they go. In a couple of weeks' time, we're going to be marking the remembrance service. And there'll be a lot of parades going on in various places. The discipline that lets the troops involved in those march together consistently isn't done by punishment. It's done by getting, showing them how to do it and training them how to do it. And there is a privilege in this as well. This passage from Heathrow, the critical bits are towards the end there. God is treating you as children. For what child is there whom a parent does not discipline? If you don't have that discipline in which all children share, then you are illegitimate and you are not God's children. We had human parents discipline us and we, discipline us and we respected them. Should we not even more willing to be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Being disciplined by God is a privilege of being in his family as he steers us grows us, changes us to be more like Jesus. No matter how uncomfortable it might be, let's remember that next time we're getting ourselves into trouble. Then when you look at the members of a family, how often do you see parts of their appearance, their mannerisms, their patterns of speech that show they're related? I mean, my own family, we have some traditions that came from my parents that we still follow on Christmas Day. And if we tried to do away with the bacon sandwiches after presents, the kids would probably mutiny, because that's part of our tradition. People used to say, I look like my mother. I'm not sure whether that was a problem for me or a problem for her. And some people say, our daughter looks like our niece. Um, that's families, and I'm sure you can think of the same in your own family. But how about us as Christians? What do we have that way? Well, we have family traditions. We have baptism. We have communion. We have worship, and okay, we may do it in different ways, just like every family does Christmas a little bit differently, but they are common. We have a commonish language when we talk about God. Yes, you know, we, again, we, traditions come up with things differently, but we don't look alike. I mean, looking around the church, you can see the families perhaps, but you know, as a whole, we don't look the same. But one of our privileges is God has put his spirit in us, and that means not only do we experience that continual presence of God in our lives that assures us of our status as children of God, 
But also, unlike a human adoption, we have some of God in us. Some of his DNA, so to speak. The part of us that does bear a family resemblance. The one that through our lives, as we grow as Christians, as we walk with Jesus and follow him, will grow and develop and make us more and more like Jesus. Give us that common way of doing things, that common appearance. We are like God's children. We follow in the family footsteps. We all know that even after we've given our lives to God, we still face temptations and trials. In fact, we're probably more aware of them now than we ever were before we became Christians, and more now than we were when we were younger in the faith, and I include some of the, our ongoing sins in there. But too often, I think we forget who we are. We're children of God. We have access to his power. Thank you. I'm a I was a slide behind where I should be. Um, Jesus won victory over sin and death on the cross, and we can access that. We can claim that in our lives daily. We just need to stop depending on our own strength, our own intentions, stop looking at things with a human set of eyes and seeing all the problems, and rely on God. Let him show us his perception of the situation, where he, as the almighty creator, the person who rules the world, he looks at the situation, we see a mountain, he sees a molehill. Let's get that percep our perception right. And Paul tells us we're joint heirs with Jesus. That's in verse 17. Remember, as I said at the beginning, in Roman thinking, inheritance wasn't something that happened when somebody died. It was ongoing. It's available now. Doesn't that sound like what Jesus taught about the kingdom of God when people asked him? Remember when the Pharisees said, when's the kingdom going to come? And he said, well... It's not coming with things that can be observed. When they say, look, here it is, there it is, off we all go. The kingdom of God is here with you now. It's present. It's like our salvation is now. Yes, we're not perfect, but we are saved. We're not finished products, but we are justified. We are citizens of the kingdom now. We have access to God's resources now. Not when we die, not when we're taken up when Jesus comes again. Think about Ephesians 5, 10 to 17. You'll remember it as the armor of God. Paul exhorts us to take up that spiritual armor so that we can stand in the spiritual warfare we have to take up. Whose armor is it? It's God's armor. If you look in Psalms, you'll actually see exactly the same imagery used of God getting ready for battle. He puts on the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation. He takes up the sword and he's given it to us. It's available to us to help us fight against the powers that oppose God in this world, to fulfill our mission to the world. And just to make one point here, a lot of the times Paul's talking about sonship. This isn't him being misogynistic, though I think people have in the past said, oh, he only talks about sons, he's not worried about the women. No, that's not what he was doing. After all, Paul was the one who wrote this in Galatians, among other things in there, there is no longer male or female, we're all one. But this thing of sonship was something radical that he was trying to communicate. I said before, Roman inheritance was through the male line. The sons inherited, the daughters got married off. If Paul had said sons and daughters, 
bearing in mind you had Romans and Greeks reading it, oh, well, that's it, the sons are inheriting, we're fine, first-class citizens, that's great. You women, sorry, we'll sort you out later, you're not inheriting. That's not what Paul was saying. What he was making clear is all of us, whatever our gender, have that inheritance. We are all joint heirs with Jesus. We all inherit the kingdom. We all inherit God's riches. And that, for first century mind, was radical, to put it mildly. And even in our society today, it's still pretty radical for all the talk about equality. So how do we respond? Well, first of all, let's be clear. Our response is not about earning our salvation. We can't do that. There is no matter how hard we try, we cannot earn our way to heaven. God had to do that for us through Jesus. Nor is it about earning favor for God. Yes, God has work for us to do. The Bible tells us he's prepared good works for us to do as we follow him. But our salvation and our our adoption as children does not depend on us doing those good works. Our response should be driven by love and gratitude to our Heavenly Father for what he's done for us and in response to the undeserved and amazing love he's shown each one of us. So, what does that mean? Well, first of all, how we behave, how we speak, how we think should reflect our status as part of God's family. We are princes of heaven. We are part of that royal family. Think of the fuss that's been in the press when Prince Harry does something stupid and shows up for the royal family. We're in that position. There's a lot of teaching, for example, on how we should and shouldn't speak in the Bible. But we recently were looking at James, and James 3 probably springs to your mind. Do we bless God in one moment and curse people in another? Is what they said. Are you in here worshipping today and calling the guy who cut you up on the A303 on your way to work tomorrow silly names? Are we showing that, or are we showing the way God expects us to behave? How do we prioritize our resources, our time, our money? Do we show by our decisions and our generosity to those in need that we really believe we have a heavenly Father who will give us good things, that we have access to all the resources of heaven? Or do we hoard what we have just in case? What are our priorities for time? Do we make meeting with God's people high on our priority list? Even more, do we make time to spend alone with God frequently, to talk to him in prayer, to read his word? How would you feel as a parent if your children never came to talk to you? They didn't want to spend time with you. Do we treat God like that, our Heavenly Father? And then where are we going? What's our focus? Put another way, where is your home, earth or heaven? Yes, we shouldn't be so heavenly-minded, we're no earthly good. But we are expected, required, to look at things with God's perspective, through God's eyes, with God's love. God loved the world enough to send Jesus to die. Do we reflect that as his children? We're citizens of heaven. If we're actually heavenly-minded, we're not a case of being no earthly good. We're very earthly good because we will need to demonstrate God's love to the people around us. Our family's in heaven. God's family's there. That's where our home should be. Not the house down the road, 
That's just a temporary dwelling. Does our way of living reflect this? Can those around us see the difference that that makes? And finally, who are we following? Who's in charge? Do we live by our desires, our inclinations, our plans? And that applies not just to us individually, but to us as a congregation as well. Or do we let God be in charge? Let him take charge. Let, put our desires behind his plans. Do we really believe what Paul wrote when he said, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who were called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, a family likeness, in order he may be a firstborn within a large family. Okay, so again, that's us, part of that family, with Jesus as the oldest son. And those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. That's us. We are going to be glorified in heaven. But do we show it now? Or are we afraid that we'll miss out somewhere if we follow God's plan rather than ours? But God's got a plan for us that's the best for us to be the best that we can be, where he can do the best for us. This has been a gallop through what is an amazing truth. As Christians, we have an incredible privilege through our adoption by God. There's also a massive challenge in it. To ensure our lives in every part reflect our status as adopted children of God. We cannot do it on our own. But God is dwelling in us. We have his Holy Spirit. We need to let him change us. We need to take advantage of the power he gives us. So that what we do, what we say, what we think, the way we spend our time reflects that family likeness, reflects our priorities, shows that we were citizens of God. As it says at the top there, our lives should reflect our status. The question for each of us is, do they? Is that what we're doing? Let's pray together.